Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. We are recording this episode in front of a very enthusiastic live audience of designers gathered here at the newly renovated showroom of Sofa.com in Chelsea. It's a magnificent space full of wonderful furniture and there a very warm welcome awaits you. My name's Susie Rumbold, I'm Creative Director of Tessuto Interiors and today we're looking at the topic of sustainable interiors and seeking to answer your questions. There are many ways in which products can be unsustainable. Some are flown halfway around the world, some are produced using unacceptable quantities of water and other natural materials, some produce dangerously polluting substances as byproducts, and others exploit and dehumanise the people that produce them. And then there is the problem of what happens to the product when it is no longer required. But in a world of competing sustainability claims, how can designers find out the truth about the products they specify and steer a confident path between the many hazards? Today, we are privileged to be joined by three designers in the vanguard of the interior design sustainability movement to answer those questions at the forefront of designer minds. I am joined by Alexandra Jokovic, creative lead at Helen Green Design. <laughs> Chloe Bullock, founder of Materialize Interiors. and David Chenery, founder and director of Object Space Place. Welcome to the interior design business. Before we get started, Alex, can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your role at Helen Green? Of course. Um, my name is Alexandra Yurkevich. I'm a creative lead and head of Helen Green Design. And uh, do you have any particular sustainability policy that you're implementing at Helen Green? We do. Um, it's still work in progress, I'm sure as we all are <laughs> on the subject. Um, our sustainability plan, of how we like to call it, started with a pledge last year. Um, we were all sitting around the table discussing that something needs to be done, blaming everyone else around us, apart from ourselves, <laughs> and then decided that change starts at home. So we made an official pledge online <laughs> just to promising we will do something and we will look into it. And that's how it started and then held us accountable to actually make differences. And that spiraled into a lot of more detailed plan of action. Fantastic. And recently we actually appointed a consultant, which is probably our the biggest step so far, to help us accelerate our journey into sustainable business. Chloe, you really are a founder in this business. Well, it's only because I was very fortunate with my um, second main job out of university. I went to work for the body shop head office in, in Eterodic's day, so um, it was kind of learning on the job all about ethical business and sustainable design. I often think, was the word sustainability even around then in the mid-90s? I just don't know when it started to be spoken about like that. We used to call it ecologically friendly. <laughs> yeah, and the processes that they went through to check everything that went in their stores. Um, it was very vigorous um, and it, it was all in line with their product offer. So it was lovely to work with a company who then conveyed their values through their spaces. And I really enjoy doing that with some of my clients now, but a lot of my clients don't know about that side to me at all and they just know me from being an interior designer in Brighton. So 
yeah, it's, I can see both sides of it often. Not all my clients are like-minded. And David? Uh, yeah, I'm David Chenery from Object Space Place. We specialize in sustainable hospitality design. Um, so for us, we developed um, something we call a restorative design framework. So it's based around the principles of a circular economy, designing out waste and pollution, keeping natural resources in use, and pushing for net zero um, as quickly as possible. Okay, so kicking off then, when it comes to sustainable products, what component materials should designers be avoiding? I think we should not be avoiding natural products, only because they are renewable. Everything else we produce doesn't disappear. All man-made products we can recycle, we can try to do a lot of things and turn them into different objects, but they don't disappear off this planet, and natural products do. They are biodegradable, we can grow more of them, obviously caveat to sustainable growing and impact on water, but natural products are there, available, we can grow more of them, we can dispose of them, they are fire redundant, they don't need any um, protection in terms of staining, anything else, it's all there, provided by nature, so that's what we should focus on and then learn about sourcing them sustainably. I think I'd probably throw a few challenges in there to some Fair. of that. I think um, when you talk about, I mean, timber, um, using timber is pretty much one of the default solutions you should ever look at in terms of the most sustainable um, options. You know, there's, if you bring in carbon sequestration and everything else in the growing, it can easily be the best material by far. Um, but if you look at something like natural stone, I mean, we're going to make oil again before we make stone. So if we're digging that out of the ground and then putting that on someone's counter island or in a Gale's bakery we're designing and then that gets stripped out in seven years' time, for example, what can you do with that? It comes back in the ground. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you're lucky. Um, so I think it, it can be complex. I do think there's probably a red list of materials that we would look to avoid. Like yeah. I think you should broadly try and avoid concrete in most forms. Cement is horrendous in terms of the carbon footprint, and you, you just unless you're doing you know, infrastructure in certain buildings where you need the reinforcement, um, you just don't need to go near it. Um, most resins, unless you're looking at the bio-resins, um, you should avoid anything with formaldehyde, probably PVC. There's a list of these and then the kind of more obscure chemicals mm. that you, you know, I know you're you know, particularly hot on as well. So are there any, any <coughs> man-made materials that are okay? Well, first of all, my answer to your question would be that it's not even look at everything being new. You know, this, this reuse, this sort of layer above and this fascination that we have with virgin materials, but um, what isn't man-made as well? I mean, everything has got something, an element of man-madeness to it. Um, I, I like to go to Green Architecture Day, which happens in Brighton, usually in the autumn, and um, at one of the talks there, somebody speaking said, can, you, can anyone in the room bring us a piece of nature that hasn't been, you know, a natural object? And of course, there's nothing. Everything's been cut, trimmed, man. There's a man-made element to everything. So, I think that's yeah. it, actually. I mean, in, in the principles of circular economy, I don't know if anyone's seen, there's a butterfly diagram where classically they split materials mm. into biological nutrients and technical nutrients. So you can kind of say natural and man-made. One will break down into the earth over time and, and one won't. Um, and, and I think, you know, man-made is... Any, anything is a process of transformation that is applied to materials and components that come together to create something else. And in many scenarios, I mean, steel is man-made, but we're not getting rid of steel. 
Um, you know, we, you know, actually steel has a very, very high recycled content to it. We need it to do, to build the infrastructure of society. Um, you know, that we can make that lower carbon, we can do other things, but I don't think you're ever going to get rid of, you know, pure man-made materials. Glass, metals, as yeah, I say, absolutely. exactly. Yeah, we're not um, going to go back beyond the Bronze Age. So we said many times probably today, it's not so black and white. There's everything has two sides of the story and you can have a beautifully sustained natural product, but the process to bring it to your end product is unsustainable and cancels all the good. So, so um, what are the main considerations then that we should look for when we're looking at that, something that's been produced in a certain way? I think it's the journey because uh, we all have best intentions, uh, but we have to make sure we see it through. So if specifying natural product, we need to look how we treat it, what's the process of um, the supply chain and everything else along the way. We can't just stop at, oh, I chose a natural product, job done. <laughs> uh, we need to see it through. And equally, weighing out the pros and cons because we can use a man-made product, as you said, and actually it's going to be more sustainable depending on this mm. and destination. Well, I think to Chloe's point, though, as well, yeah. starting even at the level of speci uh, product specification misses out the kind of philosophical and the strategic ideas above that. You know, the, mm. the most sustainable, in our case, most sustainable restaurant is the one that doesn't exist. So <laughs> we should be asking our clients, does society actually need what you're doing? Mm. That's, yeah. a that's a big ask, right? Yeah. We all need to pay mm. our rent, but we should start there, which is why, mm. frankly, a lot of people kind of step away from the sustainability conversation, because once you start pulling that thread, where are you going to end up? Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, you're not going to be uh, getting as many clients as you need. So it's kind of obvious, but that is true. And then the second most sustainable restaurant is the one that already exists. So if you're mm -hmm. going in and you can reuse stuff that exists and you can make you know, better use of that space if you can keep counters in there, in some ways as designers, we're taught that's compromise. Like that's, mm -hmm. not, that's not sexy. That's not our ego and our mm -hmm. idea. And that's not the DNA of the brand. But actually that's our challenge as designers is to make that work. If we do it the right way, we really can. I think that's the beautiful thing about sustainability is that it gives us all an opportunity to show off our creativity in clever ways, you know, working around things, reusing things, different approach, rather than just starting. We've just got so used to that format of starting from fresh. Mm. But we can really show off our skills. Yeah, because as designers, ways. we're so detached. That's the problem. We sit behind a computer or a desk. We design something. Maybe it is down the road in London. Maybe it is on, you know, on the other side of the world. And you end up thinking in a different way than if you're on site. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if anyone knows, we did a, a project recently for a restaurant called Apricity, which is in Duke Street, and there's an amazing chef called Chantel Nicholson who's super sustainable and brought us in to make the most sustainable restaurant we could possibly design. And one of the first things we did is we had to move a staircase internally because the flow didn't work, so we couldn't keep that staircase. But rather than throw it away, we made, <laughs> I really do mean made, the contractor take it out bit by bit because it was all made of timber. They wanted to obviously grow in the skin. Mm -hmm. um, and then we got them to cut that up. We looked at all the, the sections and the components. We found a kind of pattern within that and then used that to create a new wall cladding on a, on a toilet we had to oh, put onto the ground nice. floor there. So you, that, that was not cheaper mm. in any way, um, but they also managed to get a kind of apprentice joiner in their, their workshop to come and make that. So you've got a training project for someone nice. there. We've saved the carbon because we're using the same resources. And really importantly, the story there is amazing because mm. that's one of the amazing things about when you're looking at waste sustainability and reuse is you could get amazing marketing value out of it you know there's so much depth to that that you wouldn't get if we just 
went online and specified something at fifty pounds a square hmm. meter wall covering. Yeah. No, it and speci work. specifying old things, you know, the things that already have a provenance. That's the story you can tell your yeah. clients. But you you made a point a minute ago about the fact that it's nothing is black and white. I mean, can you give us some examples of of um, materials that perhaps have a good side and a bad side? You know, perhaps yeah. where it's a natural product but the process is terrible, or you know, those sorts um, of things. Things that comes to mind immediately, um, it's um, polished cotton used for rugs. Cotton, natural product, tick the box, great. Uh, but actually a process of making it shiny involves use of resin and a lot of chemicals and water. So water used to make it shiny is larger, the quantities are larger than to actually grow the cotton. So very important, no chemical or artificial treatments on natural products. The other spectrum would be recycling so we get a lot of products which are reusable um so recycled bottles pet bottles plastic the latest trend is the old fishing nets from the ocean sounds fantastic let's do something out of it but the process of actually turning them into a material and then the yarn involves again liters of water and chemicals but also they don't they don't last very well we, yeah. we specified rugs for a, a large hotel project we did where we again and i found these rugs and the client was delighted because they were recycled mm. sea plastic and this is a few years ago now when this was quite a new thing but the problem was that they flatten really badly so they they haven't stood the test of time yeah. and you take a very cheap product like a plastic bottle, you're never going to make a high-grade yeah. quality yarn mm. out of it. And so all we've done effectively is push the problem one step further down the line. And during and the process, created yeah. so and much more still problems. Going to up yeah, exactly. but, the, but, the, but this is, what I think, where it, we need to zoom out a bit as designers. We need mm. to ask bigger questions because that can be okay if you've designed into the DNA of that project that perhaps some of this aesthetic is going to change mm. every six months yeah. or twelve, you know, two years. And then you've checked that the people manufacturing that product are aware of this lifespan yeah. and have a program in place mm. to deal with that and you can get yeah. it back to them. Like, that's okay, but this is where it gets complex because mm. you end up, mm. every little project is this little ecosystem with different loops going back on itself. Yeah. Uh, and, and trying to work out how all of those work for every project it's not going to be the same yeah. that's what we mean by it's not being black and white yeah. you, you can't and the sustainability policy for the project depends on the longevity of the project as well Definitely. because different rules will apply for a project that is a family home for the next 10 20 years you apply different rules and actually use natural products handmade items longevity or recycled you know second hand etc if it's a short longevity or residential versus commercial because i think that's a massive difference as well so May I just rewind? Because <laughs> does everybody realise that um, David's design has been shortlisted for Dazeem? Yes. So, yes, you know, yes I should have said really congratulations on that. It's really <laughs> <laughs> you really deserve that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great Very accolade. It's an amazing project. Do check yeah. it out if you, if you haven't already. The food's good too. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> no, and it's incredibly inspiring, because when you were talking about it, and, and we touched on it before in all our conversations, you know, we like blaming the industry, we like blaming clients, but even immediately, I just had a few ideas of my recent project, and I know what we're stripping out of the property, and client will not volunteer, say, oh, sure, we keep this, but I can make Do something, something out of it. Yeah, exactly. and I think this is part of the problem with sustainability, is so often it's either seen as this extra thing we have to do mm. or this kind of bolt-on thing or something we have to justify or apologise for. Yeah. And I think the, the flaw with so many of the arguments around sustainability is that you either get a moral argument, like you are a bad person mm -hmm. if you don't do this, or the, the rational one that, well, we've calculated the natural resources left on the planet and actually computer says no more, mm. sorry, you're done. Um, and as human beings, we're not rational. Like, everyone mm. knows that. Any designer, I mean, like, it doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> 
So we need to change the arguments to ones that appeal to probably the more baser instincts. Yeah. So how can we do something that is, that is aspirational? So, like, yeah, apricity was featured in Vogue. Now, Vogue is not my natural habitat <laughs> at all. But I think that's cool, because it's mm. also a case study on the Ellen MacArthur Foundation website. So we've got yeah. genuine substance and something interesting enough to catch the yeah. eye of the, the kind of glitter the artsy press. And it yeah. is a lovely case study because your approach is sort of undoing the way we've learned things and doing it in a different way. You know, I love the fact that, you know, being using honest materials and not layering and layering like we've been trained to do. So, you know, it's, it's great. We need to demonstrate our work and, and how this new way of working. It's yeah. really but, I do, but I do also think there's not one way. Uh, there's, a, there's a great guy called Rory Sutherland, if anyone knows um, him. Uh, he's got a book called Alchemy, which is the power of ideas that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. And he has a great quote, and one of the chapters in there is that, a good, that the opposite of a good idea can also be a good idea. And I think that's what we kind of need to get away mm -hmm. from a bit, that there's one way, because there isn't one way. There, there can't be one way. We're all have these you know, crazy different ways of doing things. You know, Some people are incredibly eclectic hoarders and that's their thing and that's fine and you know personally i would love to live in something that's a cross between a hotel and a monastery mm. but i've got three <laughs> kids so that's never going to happen <laughs> but 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 we can't deny that humanity and difference we yeah. need as designers to find clever ways to solve it do certification programs help i'm thinking about timber as an example it does i think any certification or assessment is by definition going to be a simplification of, on reality, it can't not be. That's the whole point. Um, but it's better than getting FSC timber is better than getting non-FSC timber because you at least have some certainty. And there might be some gaming of the system within it a little bit, but broadly, you're going to be making the right choice. If you really start digging into it, though, it gets more complex than that because actually it would be better if you just um, get naturally felled timber from a local source, which might not even be FSC because That's they haven't yeah. paid for the certification. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I've got, I've got a pear tree in my back garden. I don't need a life cycle analysis to tell me that eating that is a sustainable choice, right? Mm. At some point, we need to develop an intuition mm. that is kind of commonsensical and, and you know... Yeah, it's using your way. judgment because yeah, not everything will be certified. Again, smaller businesses can't afford the certification, but we can't discredit them on that basis. Yeah. Equally, can't say, like, oh, I used this one and it didn't, so therefore, this is very... I know, because I mean, the timber one's the best known of all of mm. them. Are there any other certification programs for other types of products? What was a? I mean, there's quite a few for timber, and my favourite is FSC. It isn't perfect, but it does cover people. It co covers um, natural habitats. It's kind of like the wildlife as well as the whole felling. Um, I really like Cradle to Cradle. Yeah, I think that's. I mm. think it's. I mean, there's there's yeah. various levels of it, but I find it. A really good guide and actually that's building in numbers as well the directory is getting larger and um gots um the for organic cotton and the soil association mm -hmm. and i wish that our industry could adopt fair trade as a label more than it does because we know that sustainability is about people as well and it often gets very zero carbon mm. and i think b corp actually is quite an interesting thing to bring in because you wouldn't necessarily think about it in terms of the product itself, because obviously it isn't certifying the product, but anyone that's gone through B Corp, you know, a scandal aside, or Brew Brewdog, and actually, you know, does it, does it mean enough anymore? But they've done a lot of work to get that. And I think that anyone, ultimately all of this stuff, we're looking at certification and we're looking at it and we're trying to judge, do I trust you enough 
that you're doing the hard work behind the scenes. Mm. That's what we, we really want to know. Yeah, we want the And, we and want we're looking for those indicators okay in five, ten seconds, maybe a couple of minutes if we're lucky, if, you know, if we're assessing something mm. for the first time. So I think any of those indicators are useful, but they're never going to replace going to see how someone makes something yeah. or spending yeah. some time reading an 80-page sustainability mm. report they've done if you've got the time. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, I find in the luxury residential sector, it's there isn't that many certifications, especially the suppliers we normally use. You know, Chelsea Harbour is just around the corner. We all go there and uh, we browse through fabrics, materials, and there isn't anything to back up our choices. So it is asking the questions, and especially with the custom-made products, is asking the suppliers even if they have a sustainability policy, and you will very quickly know if someone just immediately says, uh, I have no idea. Or they say usually, yes, we're trying small steps, but we're doing something. And immediately that sets people apart and that sets suppliers yeah, apart. It must be difficult in the luxury because this, this is the other end of... Yeah. I mean, I do a small amount of residential and quite a lot of commercial, but it must be very hard. It's just, you know, people think they're paying a lot of money for something, so therefore all the people in the supply chain yeah. are getting yeah. paid for. And we know from these exposés and things that they're not. You know, good weave is, is so important as a, a certification to use for rugs, for example, mm. because they check that children aren't yeah. working on these. You know, it's so I think there's a definitely space for certifications. It also reminded me that there's, I think... Certification in a way as, as well is, is about scale in some ways. Mm. So we're talking about actually qualitative assessment. So we're looking at different aspects, whether it's water usage or energy or people and all of those things, which is probably the best, most all round. But there's the whole carbon question, which sort of stands alone from that. And in our experience, we deal with, you know, bigger businesses, like we might be talking to, to Wagamama. And when, you, when you're talking to a big company, sustainability has to be able to be logged on a spreadsheet. Mm. And that means it has to become a number. So carbon is useful, but even though I always say that carbon is to sustainability what calories are to a healthy diet, it is a massive oversimplification. Mm. If you're looking at scale, it's, a, it's a probably the best one you've got. So I do think that looking at the embodied carbon um, of, of a product is a, is a very helpful thing, particularly when you're starting to piece together mm. larger projects. So for Apricity, you know, we were taking an approach based on the circular economy, but we also measured the embodied carbon footprint, and we know that we got that to 192 kilos per metre squared, as opposed to a typical fit out of 350. Brilliant. Uh, we had to get that. We had to pay someone to generate that because there isn't that data mm. well, I was going to say, and you'd never get a private client in a high-end residential yeah. product to pay for somebody, well, not often, mm -hmm. to pay for someone to actually do that analysis. But it's that sort of, it's that sort of carbon modelling and that sort of damage modelling that is, is, and it exists. Mm. I mean, there are lots of um, investment funds now that, that specialise in green investments and they, you know, any, any product or any company that they take on, they assess and part of their portfolio packages is they've, they're completely clear with their investors as to, you know, the various the, the relative damage that these, these products are causing. But at this, at this moment in time, there is nothing like that kind mm. of global approach for, for interior design no, but it's also an obligation of larger businesses. You know, even even for us, we're part of a larger design group. There, there are fans, and that's why we decided to bring a consultant on board. And this will generate, you know, abundance of knowledge that we can share with other designers who wouldn't have access to this. Because the bottom line is just changing the world. And if we can, uh, we can do it different ways. And some people have more time for research; they can search that. We had, we're lucky to have more fans to be able to engage someone, and then. Hopefully we can, you know, discuss this further yeah. in a year's time, and then you know, have the new, have, a have the a knowledge. Yes. Yeah. 
There it, are tools like um, 2050 materials. I was going to And that's just really picked up. It, I mean, it's been launched two months ago, and, and the numbers of... Just so in case anyone missed it, tell us again what it's called. 2050 materials. 2050, 2050 yeah. materials. Okay, and, fantastic, um, thank you. That is proving to be a really nice data database to use, and that will give you carbon calculations, how much water... It will, um, it will tell you about ozone depletion ability as well of a product. So and even they're trialling a project section now. Yeah, so you they can are, set yeah. up a project and actually start putting your materials in. So you're going to get a dashboard that measures the climate impact. Oh, wow. So obviously they're, tr they're trying to trickle that down to a point where we can do it um, ourselves without having to, uh, you know, not, there's always going to be some assumption there. And there's obviously a level of expertise above if you're looking at different measures. Um, but it will be a tool that I think. You know, we need to be literate in that. We need yeah. to know that this material is five times more carbon than that. Because if we just knew that, a lot of well, us would It would, would go, influence your choices, yeah, certainly. Because we all have an element of control here. You know, you offer your, your client in one, two, three tiles. Pick one. Um, you know, if you were offering them the right three tiles, we do have an element of yeah. influence. It's nice to know there's something there that is scalable as well. Yeah. Because I feel like I speak for micro businesses being mm. a salt practitioner. And, and that's a tool that is very available for me. I think the problem starts when there's a complex supply chains Because when, when I choose between natural stone or man-made stone, I can use all those guidelines to check. But if I'm ordering a sofa <laughs> from an upholsterer, what questions do we ask? How can we actually hold them accountable for what they're doing? And, and that's very important because I think in our day-to-day -day practices, we don't have much time to do the research for everyone. It's just finding the suppliers who have similar mindset who are doing the work and holding them accountable to it as well. Do you want to just talk about what designers should be looking for in terms of the projects that they specify and maybe outline what those virtuous circles are within the circular yeah, economy? Yeah, we can do. I mean, I guess we could... Uh, we, when we started looking at sustainability ourselves six years ago, we started with the question of, okay, what does this even mean? How do we, how do we get to something that maybe even can give more than it takes? Is that possible? Does that break some law of physics? I don't know. Can we make it happen? <laughs> and we started looking at the assessment systems in the first instance, and we thought, well, that's great. If we get BRIAM Excellent or SCAR Gold is... Is that enough? Have we saved the world? Is that, can we just stop then? But it wasn't, we didn't understand what that... It didn't feel right. It's still linear, and that was the problem. And then when you look at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and all the stuff they have on circular economy, you realise that you need to understand your project within the context of a wider ecosystem and how what you do is only part of you know, a piece of furniture or a materials journey in its, in its whole life. And we need to start from that aspect and then when you do that you have to ask different questions so we realize that our design framework needs to start with three phases we need to have demolition and strip out before you do anything can we keep everything that's there do we need to take this stuff out and if we do where's it going to go can we use people like globe chain so that we dispose of this responsibly because you know if we throw something away away isn't a real place that doesn't mm. it can't <laughs> it can't no go away. somewhere magical it has to, has to yeah. go somewhere and who's responsible oh for we that? arrange someone to pick it up and yeah. then the where it thank ends. you very much yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um because we're busy right yeah. um and then you so you start there and then you look at the low impact design piece i.e you've got to talk about materials and carbon footprint and water usage and, and the social side and all of that but then you also look at the end of life because we should be connecting that circle to design it in such a way that when the next person comes along um, and has to kind of do something else with that space because the average space is fitted out 20 to 30 times in its lifetime. It's going to happen no matter how amazing our designs are. It will get changed. So how are we going to make it as easy for them 
to take apart and redo that demolition and strip out phase. So, so you talk, you you mentioned so, you mentioned the sharing economy, and then yeah. so what then is the next level? You know, if, if if I'm stripping out all this stuff, what do I? If I'm specifying something that at some point in the future somebody's going to take out and have to dispose of. So I would always look for specifications that are easily repairable. You can buy spare parts for. You know, that's kind that kind of thing. Um, having a really good resale value. I have a lot of projects where I'm buying second life of Herman Miller product and they, you know, we can buy spare parts for them easily and then that client could even sell them afterwards because they've just got their higher value and they, um, so, yeah, kind of like the ability to dissemble something at the end of its useful life. So things that can be taken apart and put back into their component bits. Because we know from the RSA did a... Um, a project some time ago with RAP um, where they were analysing what was coming into landfill and it's something like 51% was reusable instantly or with a very small repair. And then there was the whole issue of the fire label on things being cut off, which meant that it couldn't go anywhere other than landfill. And so, and, and the, the figures are probably higher than that because if you were to add in mattresses and things, mm. you know, that's still furniture, so that makes it even higher. So, yeah, we, we kind of... Um, need to kind of make sure that things are retaining their highest value for the longest amount of time however we do that you know resale is the but i think thing. there's all there is also commercial a commercial positive to a lot of that you know, we work for say gales bakery and we do quite a lot of projects and in a way we have a different opportunity with someone like that where you have multiple sites because mm -hmm. what we've started doing is looking what we can do to recycle from one site to the next because if oh, we've nice. only got a short window to fit out and we want to retain these timber chairs but get them resprayed and, and, and changed to suit the new design that's going in, we know that, that they're putting pressure on us so there isn't commercial time to get that out and back in, in in the window we've got. So what we do is we take that out and then we fit it into the design of the next site. So you start getting mm. this ecosystem where we're keeping it in use and we use um, a company called Raw Workshop, who's a social enterprise. So you get those chairs you know, repaired and resprayed cost 55 pounds or something like that, that as opposed to buying a new chair which might cost really, two or three times that's not really recycling in the sense that most people understand recycling no but yeah, that's because mm. but this is the way we need to yeah, think about yeah. it there are materials there it has a use how can we reuse do you, it i mean alex i was just wondering do you can you explain to us the difference between closed and open recycling what's, what's yes. that all about um closed is where we convert the item into another one of those, so bottles, the best example. We melt them and make more bottles, <laughs> glass bottles, uh, and open it. We reuse it, but in, to create something else, so the example of rugs made out of bottles, there is still end to that cycle, and we still need to, at the end of the so day, dispose of it. Doesn't, it away. doesn't go round and round yeah, and round. It exactly. goes round once and falls round out Round a few back. times, yeah. and then yeah. there's still so an issue. <laughs> this closed loop where manufacturers will take back their products mm. and rework them and so, you know so there's that closed loop that stays within yeah. as well which is a beautiful thing you know and that that is happening where more. can designers find out about closed and um, take back services for suppliers there are they, they exist i'm just trying to think of some but they <laughs> well i think that also the challenge with those is it tends to, it tends to only be the big companies that can mm. offer that and then they'll put it out there probably very genuinely but the the systems aren't in place for you know, the strip-out contractors or whoever's doing it to, to go and split them out and go, yeah. well, where's yes. the commercial incentive for them to yeah. do it? And so I think then you start getting some quite deep questions about the level of systemic change we need in the design and fit-out industry, which mm. is probably beyond the, the scope of this and conversation. But, it, it, but that's where you can't... 
you know, you can't move the mountain. Um, but then, so you, you need to work within those parameters, um, I think, It would be, I mean, material passports are a thing, and, and it would be lovely to see that happening, mm. you know, so that you know, when it is at its end of its life, there is a code that you can look up. And because at the moment I'm packing as much as I can into the O&M manuals of my projects to hand over and telling them mm. that this company will have these materials back at their end of their life, you know, making sure they've got it electronically and everyone knows about it, but it do will disappear. It? And, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, yeah it, that's it, the problem. We, we need this sort of some, something fixed to things so that people can scan them and know. Oh, yes, I suppose you just, it just needs a, a barcode on a, you know, a, a, a QR code on a label, doesn't it? I saw on Grand Designs the other night, actually. They had a yes, QR code on the outside, and they had the whole downloadable PDF. Yes, and how to take it yeah, the O&M manual was on a QR code. It was a brilliant idea. Um, really, 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 really clever. Um, so then the best materials being the ones then that last and the clients will be happy to use for a long, long time. What sort of things should we be considering to make sure that our clients can use products for a long time? I mean, I think it's the, the materials that we use and if are they fit for purpose because we can design a beautiful table, use sustainable materials, um, think that it will last forever and the clients will use it. But if, if we know we make it out of lacquer and we know it will scratch, then our clients will not think of repairing it. They will just dispose they can afford to, at least in you know, my, my yeah. industry. And, and is there a, do, do you find that you also, um, if someone's, if it's their forever home, for example, and they want to spend the next 30 years there, are you also factoring in the things that you're specifying to account for the fact that their needs will change? Um, yes, but that's where the timeless design comes from. So there's always going to be things that we know are going to change or damage. That's where we have to be more careful. Are they easy to recycle? Are they easy to pass on, change, even if it's still a, an open cycle? Just can you do something else with it? Can you dye it, for example, if it's light fabrics? Are they easy to change colour or... Is so far possible to reupholster some designs? You know, you know if everything is possible to do, but you just know some things are harder. And the whole mindset of oh, if it's easier to buy a new one, why would they bother to reupholster? It's also encouraging clients to do it as well. Mm. Um, but it's definitely we try to. We can't. The problem we've got in the luxury residential um, sector is we don't really use a lot of antiques or recycled products, items, furniture. I would love to do it more, but again, time for research and refurbishment and client wants to see a beautiful item on a presentation board. That's what it comes down to, and I can't change it. I wish I could. So what we decided to do is, especially for those showstopper pieces, is make them antiques that will be passed on in the future. The so we make sure tomorrow. they last forever and the clients will want to pass it on. They're timeless, they're well made, they're sustainably made, and and too expensive to just throw away. No, but oh, just thinking about house of upcycling, actually, <laughs> when you were saying that, who, who turn lovely old furniture into beautiful items that are going to last a long time, and they are artistic and beautiful, and mm. they're sort of like, you know, it's, yeah, yeah it's something that is going to be handed down. That doesn't seem to happen anymore, does yeah, it? Yeah, not the way it used to. I think to, partly yeah. we also, I mean, probably a bit, a bit of a, a strong uh, move to go in for a client presentation, but we kind of need to understand that time is a real thing, and that's okay. Mm. Everything ages, yeah. you know, actually that's a positive process. It actually connects us to 
the natural world that we live in. Mm. You know, part of biophilic design is based around that whole idea of you know, understanding yeah. nature and time. So uh, partly as designers, I think sometimes we can fall into that trap that we want it to just look like the visuals yeah. and we want it to never change. <laughs> no <laughs> one's allowed so to change to it. The client, it. You know, so, oh, they don't care if they have to change that fabric, you know, next year. But I should care, so mm. I should only show them the options which will be sustainable on that sofa, on that chair, not show them something that will wear off in a year. And they will be afford, able to afford to, to get rid of it, but I don't want them to, so it's my responsibility to, to make it last long. But we also, we also, in our practice, we look at things like, um, you know, we've, we've almost stopped specifying doorknobs. <laughs> we always do levers now, yeah. because actually you can turn a lever with an arthritic hand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cross heads on taps are a no-no, because in 25 yeah. years you simply won't be able to turn them on and off. So there are all those little details that we look at that should, in theory, if the product you've specified in the first instance is of sufficient quality, should allow it to be used for longer without mm. subsequent modification. So, again, it's showing off... The, the interior designer's skills being able to think into the future yeah. doing things in a non-clunky way you know it makes me think of you know this third age stuff that Laurie teaches us you know and, um so yeah kind of thinking forward and 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 uh, designing out problems so that things don't need replacing it's moving on then on the basis that nothing is perfect, which we've just established, how do you go about comparing the relative environmental damage of carbon versus pollutants versus lack of circularity? And I know we've talked about the fact that there are places you can go to look this stuff up, but, you know, if, if your product isn't listed, how do you...? Um, I, I don't think there is an answer mm. for that. There's, there's, not there's, no, <laughs> there's no magic flowchart that will yeah. tell you that this is 3% better than that, I think. You need to gut feeling, kind of judgment. Yeah, well, I think you develop an intuition. Yeah. I think you only do that by reading and reading and reading mm. and doing and learning and seeing. Just the experience of being a designer, yeah. right? Everyone here, if you've been a designer for any period of time, you have more design intuition than when you started. You could walk into a room and you will see something, mm. right? And that's because all yeah. of that information has been taken in and it's drifted down to your subconscious and you've developed yeah. that. And I think we just need to invest time as designers in building that kind of sustainable intuition. Yeah. So it's, it's real just designers doing their due diligence. So, I mean, Alex and Chloe, do you have a um, do you have certain publications that you read or are there certain, where do you go for this information? You well, read Passive I mean, House I mean, We go to, to suppliers directly because we discovered very quickly we can't learn everything uh, immediately. And do you find that sometimes your suppliers don't know what they're talking about? They don't, but then we, we, then we either <laughs> ask them to look into it or answer our questions and then ultimately don't use them if they're not trying to do anything. We've inspired a lot of suppliers already. They, they said, look, guys, you've asked us about our sustainability policy. We had none, but now we had the club, you know, team meeting, and we're trying to make changes, and and even from very small things. So I guess we go to the source, and actually, surprisingly, a lot of companies have the policy, and some surprised us entirely. Um, we thought they almost not sustainable, and they actually said, "No, we do this and this." <laughs> I wish there was something that would really neatly do this for us. But the other thing is kind of really tapping into the values and the desire of the client and kind of you know once you've got that synergy of um they feel like they're locking into what mm. you're presenting to them it's very easy then it sort of opens doors for you to show them a concept that involves all of those kinds of specifications so it's kind of tuning into them very well in the early stages um and you know i do that through mm. my onboarding questionnaire so i get a feel for 
where their values are. And I think for, for you, both of you, you run your kind of USP is sustainability yeah. in your practices. So perhaps your clients are seeking you out and looking for that in... in but that was a deliberate choice for us. We started mm. doing it by trying to influence our existing yeah, clients. Yeah, so, so then... You mean, honestly, it's, it's just the most thankless task. It's honestly, yeah. it, you just, you need, you want the clients to be pushing you so that you're going to go and do that research mm. and see that supplier and read that book and find that thing and go to that show because, my God, how am I going to solve that problem? I don't know how to do but, that. But yet. for us mere mortals, and, you know, Alex, yes. <laughs> Alex and I are the mere mortals in this, in this conversation, um, you know, what, what are you doing to, to encourage your clients' interest in sustainable design? Do you, do you um, broach the subject with them? We do, and actually more and more um, when new clients approach us, they say, oh, we heard that you, you try to have sustainable solutions, which they never want to listen to, and they actually choose something that's, that's, that's not, but that's a separate subject. But um, for us, it's almost in reverse. We, um, at the end of, a lot of clients, they don't care where things come from or they're not involved in the process. So uh, we try to get them excited. We, we share uh, pictures from manufacturing and sampling everything else and we can only do it when we use suppliers which we are proud of and the processes that we are proud of and suppliers that are close and we can go to them and visit their workshop and show the process so, um, all of this is a part of getting them excited and we then we mention you know this is sourced locally this is made by a local artisan and they then get on board so something else comes along and we say well look we could order this from this ready-made company, blah, blah, blah. But you know how much you love this lovely chandelier that we have this made, you know, just outside London, and, and they can do the same for this product, and it will be more expensive, but, you know, there are benefits. So we try to engage during the process or after, which inspires only them, hopefully, for the future. Um, we did create project books. I'm sure we all, all do it, but we try to emphasize their sustainable products and, and their journey. And, and it's been incredible success. We have clients calling back saying like, tell me the story of the table again, because it was just so inspiring and so nice. So hopefully we just inject that. You know, I think that passion. storytelling is really important. Yeah. Yeah, you go back to kind of the, the human need for why we're doing yeah. this. And the storytelling is, is massive. But I also think we need to not kid ourselves that clients want sustainable yeah. design even if they're coming to people who've put yeah. it over the door, yeah. right? You know, yeah. or you, they want great design that happens to be sustainable. They would like oh, to yeah. say... For most people, yeah. and that's probably 80%. Yeah. There's 20%. And if they have it. to pay more, they will definitely not want that. I think the RIBA and the, new, and the 2020 plan of work are encouraging us all to actually set sustainability goals as part of the brief mm. and to actually embed them right from day one. So, you know, you say to your client, right, yes, you, you're going to have this, 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 and this, and that's four bedrooms and 17 bathrooms mm -hmm. and whatever else it happens to be, and a media room and a gym and a... <laughs> pool and blah blah but you know what are the sustainability goals you know where do we want to go in terms of sustainability and perhaps if we were having those conversations at that point mm. and actually putting them into the brief and that then drives out your sustainability goals so as mm. I said the RIB are, are very much encouraging everyone to set sustainability goals for their projects so perhaps if designers had that conversation and pushed a little harder a little earlier it would just get the thought processes it may come to nothing you know mm. we have clients that say they want to do it and actually then it all gets edited out which is hard yeah, but, but how about just yeah. doing it anyway yeah just, you know stealth mode even just just don't offer you them don't anything have to say. so going back exactly. to that you can have one of these yeah, three tiles exactly. yeah 
Yeah. I think that's easier. Uh, but I think it's a really good point. Uh, we've never done this before. Asking question, do you want it sustainably done or not, is not the it. question. It's yeah. like, just do it. what ways? Or, or just saying it <laughs> as a given. How much child labour <laughs> yeah. like Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> project. Just give me a bar and yeah. I'll see what I can do. They cannot very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Just, just don't give them the choice, um, especially if something is completely unethical and, and we just completely disagree with. Just and we're don't not do the it. only people in their lives that are mm. talking about sustainability. Yeah. It's coming well, to them. Children, all their children are. Yeah, mm. yeah. and good on, good on them. And it's happening in yeah. their food choices, their clothing choices. You know, we're not the only people. They're mm. used to hearing this. So I think we need to be a bit more bolder and just yeah. be telling them, you know, the, yeah. These, yeah. these are the better choices. And you know, just don't Because we are meant to guide. <laughs> That is our job, is to guide. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. And the client is like, well, couldn't you find, you know, a cheaper light? Or they say, well, yes, but, you know, these suppliers are not sustainable. They're not um, I think ethical. that's the thing, is to explain the yeah. externalities. Yeah. You know, the reason it's cheap is because somebody else is either picking up the social yeah. cost or it's the Primark. environmental yeah. cost, and yeah. it's not built in. Yeah. Do you want Primark in your house? Exactly. Um, it's not good enough. Okay. Of course. Now, I did start asking clients, you know, especially when we're looking at cheaper options, like, wouldn't you rather wait and do yeah. it maybe next year and most of the time they say yes and then most of the time they actually do it at the same time it's like you know you're right it's better to get something good quality i've yeah. just realized as well we're kind of still talking about sustainability as if it has to be more expensive yeah and in my opinion it 100 percent doesn't I, I think if you go far enough up strategically with the questions you're asking like do i even need to do this what's mm. the least i can do to make this excellent because excellent isn't up for debate it has to be that no mm. one's going to forgive you for less but if we can look at this a different way, if we can use less materials, if we can think about this cleverly, if we can reuse waste, if we can use different suppliers, I really believe that you can yeah. do it for the same cost. I mean, yeah. the, 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 say the bakeries we work on for Gales do not cost more than the other architects who also do Gales. Yeah. It doesn't cost more to do it our way. Yeah. So why would you not? It's, a hard, it's harder yeah. for us in the, in the initial run to work out all this stuff and do the research and then yeah. get the, the intuition and, and some of that supply. But once you've done it, it's not, it's and not there's also it. a balance because a lot of these things maybe are more expensive, but then recycling and repurposing is saving money. So, you know, we can keep the kitchen, we can keep the worktop, we can keep the marble in the bathroom. But that's and fair then enough uses if, you're, money. if you're doing multiple retail outlets mm. like a Gales, because actually you do have that inbuilt circularity almost by default. It's very difficult well, if you're doing... Well, it wasn't by default. <laughs> it's been mm. kind of forced uh, in there, but, okay. but yes. But, but it's, different to some, it's different to a designer who might be working on three or four different, um, again, residential projects mm -hmm. or even commercial projects, but for different target markets, different budgets, different, different types of buildings, mm -hmm. and each one is totally different to the other. So we, we, we work across such a broad range of product types and materials... And it's almost impossible. I mean, I've, I've had clients in the past that have tried to say, oh, I'm sure this is a small bone kitchen. We must be able to sell it. You try taking a small bone kitchen, no matter how good it mm. is, mm. and trying to find someone else that will buy it because mm. it will fit in their house. It won't. Of course it won't. But I think it's almost um, not shaming clients into it, but if we just say, like, well, surely you don't want to rip it all out because that would be unsustainable. They almost might be too scared to say, no, I want to. You know, it's just, just being clever with it. And also, no one says no to saving money. So if we sell it as a saving on a project, I'm sure they will want to. As long as we can prove it will be exceptional in the end, as, as you say. You know, everyone will hold us accountable for yeah. that. But well, we can. We all can. Oh, it's something that you... you raised earlier what information do designers need to give their clients at the end of a project the all-important so, yeah, o&m manuals the o &M manual. Yeah. and so um 
It's it's everything. Operation it's and a- maintenance, just in case. <laughs> it's Everyone loves doing those. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of the mopping up at the end and making sure it's as built drawings are there. That you know, that all the lighting's on there for maintenance. Every everybody knows which wall is painted with what, and, and you know, it's just to make because that is the bit that sometimes we don't think about enough. Is like the the when we've gone away kind of like the maintenance and also the kind of looking back at a project and kind of evaluating and and how's it gone the post occupancy evaluation checking that we don't repeat mistakes that are bad for health the costly you know wasting materials but yeah the the manual has everything in it to make sure that it can be maintained because that's where a lot of the carbon you know the, the the maintenance of a building when you know, we look at that 45% of CO2, it's construction. We, we're not obliged to provide the sustainability information, but I hope and, and think we soon will have to. So sooner we incorporate it into our practices, the better. Um, we're trying to, and on the side of FFNE, which is so different to construction because there are so many tools on construction side where you can measure. With FFNE, we're just trying to do it ourselves and we have now a bracket in where we note sustainable choices we made to, mm. towards making a product. And, and they're not perfect. Maybe sometimes we think it's sustainable and it's complete opposite. Again, the dilemma of choices we're making. But, but we're trying to give it thought. And I think giving thought of the process of making is very important. Not only because of sustainability. I think in general in our industry, knowledge of production is very small with designers. That's how you set apart good experienced designers from those who have a great eye and create beautiful things, but don't know how things are made. And I think having being insightful and, and thinking about the process not only will help us making a better designs, but also know what questions to ask along this journey. Because if I really think of how this table was made immediately, it prompts questions about where the materials were from, where they were produced, when they were so do you put have together. A, do you have a set list of questions that you interrogate suppliers with? Um, it starts with basic ones. Um, where is something made? That's the starting point. Obviously, the how long it will take to bring it over. Is it made in a country which doesn't have sustainable sustainability laws or obviously child labour, slave work, all of these things? Uh, what is it made of? A second question. And then again, balancing pros and cons of natural versus man-made, depending on what's suitable. Um, and then um, we ask, again, this is a little bit more day-to-day, um, what's uh, the recycling policy in the factory or in the manufacturing process and packaging, because things keep on arriving wrapped in plastic. And as much as we love to say we'll recycle it, we it ends up in a skip at the end of long install in the middle of the night when we're trying to clean it up before client comes in the morning. Everything goes to, to the bin. So we're trying to make sure things are wrapped in sustainable materials, at least that can be recycled. Something that might help to know is coming through. So I'm part of Interior Design to Claire's and um, I've been there to help it get (laughs) (laughs) And there's some lovely members of the steering group here tonight as well. And and we are putting together a... We're basically sharing our information with each other and building a supply screening form, which we're going to... Share. sharing wow. for a tool. I mean, I'm not sure how long it will take, but it's, it's yeah. in the process now. And, and I just think it's so important that all these resources that we have are shared because, you know, that is our way out of this problem, isn't it? Yeah. Um, That's what we do learners. as well. We, we approach 
a lot of suppliers approaching us because of when we made our, our, ple our pledge public, a lot of suppliers came like, oh, actually, we, we're doing it already. Let us tell you more about it. And, and we have those workshops lined up with people we've used for years. We just didn't know. And, and learning from them and then sharing this knowledge. And it's great to you know, give a shout out to the companies that are already doing it and then encourage others because it's also a um, competitive market. And if, we, if, if it's not for their own moral reasons, if it's just the competition is the reason why some companies will start um, you know, implementing these changes, then why not? <laughs> All of this adds to the already encyclopedic product mm -hmm. knowledge that designers already need to have at their fingertips in order to design appropriately. Is it possible? Is it actually physically possible to know that much? And is it reasonable to expect us to? Should the burden all fall on I, interior designers? I'm in awe of our industry. I think interior designers, you know, of wearing very many hats. I, I just have great admiration of our industry, uh, you know. And, yeah, I know it's another layer to take on, but I think that we're, we're capable of doing it. I think, I think designers can... I think that we have a feel for it. I think there's a, a lot of fear for people stepping into sustainability because they're worried about being criticised or called out, and, and there is none of that. They're, they're, you know, we just want to encourage it, even if it's imperfect. But yeah, I kind of yeah, just want people to. And the thing is, just having a conversation, and and you know, this is a subject where we all have to come together. We're not competitors, and, yeah. and, and we have to share the information that's no longer, uh, oh, we will use it as, you know, uh, it sets us apart from the competitors. We are going to be the sustainable company. I want every company to be a sustainable company. I'm glad that we're doing it, and, and I hope we're pioneering in the luxury sector, but I want every single designer to do the same, do the same. and I don't care if that means that my clients will go to them so as long as we all... There's enough, there's enough work yeah, to go exactly. And it's <laughs> kind of like, you know, we've been put in competition with us for each other for so long. And this yeah. is why I like being in the BIID, because mm. there is no competitiveness. We're, all we're doing is helping each other and it's learning. A joy. Yeah. It's yeah. great. It's such a joy. So, yeah, it's kind of the less yeah. of that, the more collaboration, yeah. the better. So then just to wrap up, because I want to open up to the audience, mm -hmm. um, do you have any golden rules that designers should follow if they want to design sustainably? <laughs> I, have to say, I have a terrible memory generally, so I have to reduce it down to simple things. Otherwise, I'm just going to get lost in day to day. But um, normally, when I'm giving, if I'm giving someone like, okay, you've got a gun to your head, you've got 30 seconds, here's, <laughs> here's, here's three things. So the first question is, can you do nothing? And it sounds yeah. really dumb, but is there a way you can do nothing? So I often say, like, from a restaurant perspective, if someone's come to you with a brief and they want to increase their turnover by 20%. Mm. Well, actually, can we re-engineer your menu? Can you talk to somebody else? I, I don't want to put some more seats in you and do this extension. You don't need it. So actually, if we can think bigger and ask those questions, mm. we can get away with some, get away from some work. If you have to do something, can you do something reclaimed that already exists with it, a material piece of furniture? Can you bring that in? Because nine times out of 10, the carbon footprint, the environmental impact of that is going to be markedly lower than anything else you can get made. Um, and then if you have to go beyond that, then uh, can you make it out of wood? Like I said in the <laughs> beginning, you, yeah. you can't you go far wrong carbon. with a sustainably yeah. sourced piece of wood. Yeah. So there you go. Do those three things and we've solved most, yeah. <laughs> most of the issues. I mean, for us, it's a little bit different again, but um, for us, the golden rule is like, what are we going to do? What will be our sustainable choices? The, the, the answer that, that we can't is not the answer anymore. So it's a very simple rule. And then obviously there's a lot of follow-ups. <laughs> but, but just let's, let's decide what will be our sustainability choices on that project. Sometimes it's the fit-out. Sometimes it's the materials we use. But there's always a way. Yeah, it's the common sense of distances, you know, thoughts about coal fire production, you know, where things are coming from. It's... 
So, um, yeah, sustainable timber, thinking about indoor air quality, thinking about the people element, the human-centric design, the health. Those are all ways of kind of looking at sustainability in a different way as well. And then I think I'd add a couple, one of which would be use less. Mm. So do you have to tile that entire bathroom or will no. just the shower and the bath area do? Does it have to be yeah. completely covered? Um, and then the other one is keep it simple, stupid. You know, use bigger pieces of stuff. Don't use tiny little bits of mosaic that inevitably are no, going to end up in a... Of course, it's like, new wallpaper. Do you actually <laughs> need to have the kind of the yeah. framing with the brass detail and then the leather and yeah. then the glass <laughs> and yeah. then the eglisme? Yeah. You know, could we just go back to three of those. It can be as simple as uh, sourcing you know, all wallpapers from the same supplier, so it all goes in one packaging and comes you know, to site by one courier. It, it's as simple as that. We don't have to be responsible for how it's manufactured and every, every step of the journey. It's just simple decision like this, which we can actually control. Yeah. I Good. think designing out waste, though, is actually really important. Mm, so yes. designing oh, yeah. out so you can avoid them cutting tiles on site. Yeah, that's absolutely. A skill. Yeah. Or knowing that if you're going to make a unit and its top is 600 yeah. by... You know, 1200, you know that the stone you specified comes in, you know, eight by four sheets. Well, there's three quarters yeah. of a slab of waste there. So how can we do that? Yeah. Don't yeah. make just this one cushion and three fabrics, one for front, one for back, <laughs> yeah. and one for the exactly. piping. Exactly, no. that's the point. <laughs> it's okay. not good anymore. We really must throw it open to the audience because <laughs> I'm sure they have thousands of questions. Who would like to... Yes, Anna, please. Hi, everyone. Anna from Run for the Hills. We do commercial design and residential design. Honestly, guys, it's been really inspiring. Talking to clients, getting that pushback. It's more expensive, you know, doing all of that. Anyway, I'm so fascinated, Chloe, to hear more about the new scheme that you're developing. I just wonder if, if we're all going to be silos, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 um, individual companies from small to large. And obviously, Alex, you've got, you know, as you say, you've got some funding behind you. It sounds like you're so experienced at what you do as well. But is there a way for us to combine? You know, it, we could wait 20, 30 years for our industry to catch up. Is there a way to galvanise, to join resources, to crowdfund, to pull together, to inspire a few PhD, you know, research mm. studies that just give us the information? Because I, where do you start? And where is that time to read that 60-page report? Or even to fire those questions well, maybe off to suppliers? Maybe that's where the BIID could help. Um, yeah. yeah. Interiors and Claire's for sure. That's exactly what it does, which is amazing. Mm. And then just get as much funding for it as we can. Yeah. I also think, you know, we have an incredible buying power just saying no to the suppliers who are not doing anything or just don't know what their plan is. It's really simple. And they will change very quickly. You know, yeah, there's because there are so many the money that, you know, they, they will follow the yeah. demand. So just yeah. the fact that they will hear this podcast or watch this podcast, yeah. they know that the questions are there. If they're savvy, they're going to be there exactly. with the answers. More questions? Yes, there's a lady on the sofa down here. Hi, um, I'm Rebecca. Um, I work in the cruise ship industry. Um, so my question is, how would you encourage design companies to operate more sustainably? So, like, for example, I work in the FF&E department and we get samples delivered and I ask, like, my manager or, like, other seniors, oh, what do you think of this? And they say, oh, no, just chuck it. Like, how would you... Yeah. I have to say, getting rid of samples is a nightmare. I might well, just we jump recycle in on that. We, we are forever yeah. asking suppliers, will they please come and pick oh, up no their samples? Oh, no one They just yeah. say, just chuck it. Just Even those beautiful like, no, that's books. cost you a fortune yeah. to produce it. You could give it to some show to someone else. When we've launched a program of universities, um, design universities, any schools, um, they, they love our samples, so now we keep it. There is a, a sample bin <laughs> at the studio. I have our fabric samples yeah. that go to the art yeah. department of a local school. Yeah, yeah but we've become really good at doing everything. that, but yeah. it feels to me that that's not right. I feel like there should be a, a 
responsibility Absolutely. of the companies right. taking yeah. it back. Yeah. But that's where and we I have to be creative because if they're not doing it, this doesn't end here. It's like, oh, well, supplier doesn't want it, so we might as well just get rid of it. We try to find it. But again, way. I think it's one of those mm. things en masse that we might be yeah. able to have something yeah. to yeah. move with. I'd, yeah. I'd probably like to be a bit more radical. I'd probably like mm. to say that all design awards have to meet a certain sustainability yeah. benchmark. Yeah rather than having a little sustainability category off to the side. Yeah. And then if you don't meet it, you get shot. You actually have to. Um, <laughs> yeah. You actually have to yeah, provide that information. And it well, just be it, uh, to be even If you did that, the speed at which everyone Absolutely. would change would be amazing mm. because you, you'd lose so much marketing. Yeah. Any other questions? Who? Oh, yes. I'm Kevin from Harrison. Um, one of the big problems we have is actually selling sustainability to clients, um, generally for one reason, which is cost. Um, Obviously, a client can save a lot of money by sustainability. And the stuff you're talking about is quite small when you're talking about finishes and things like that, but mechanical, showers, water, electrics, and all that sort of stuff. Is that something you sell? Because obviously, to push something through for a client, it has to be the cost. Sustainability doesn't work unless the client can make it work from a financial point of view. Yeah, well, from, from our perspective, I mean, you're talking, yeah, operational carbon, the, the energy use piece, we aren't MEP designers, so we might work alongside someone like Mesh Energy, who are awesome on that sort of stuff, um, if, if you want to look them up. But that would be a kind of an affiliate to us, and you know, we might bring them together for a team on a project where they've said, oh my God, make us the most sustainable you know, thing, whatever, thing ever. Um, but in terms of the other side, really, as designers, we are mainly concerned with the embodied carbon, the, you know, the emissions that goes into the stuff that goes into that space. And I think over um, you know, any meaningful period of time, that is, I can't remember what the statistic is. Is it, is it 40%, 50%? It's, it's, it's a very, very meaningful amount. According to the project book, it's yeah, 45%. 45%. <laughs> of a project. So, so that, that is very meaningful. <laughs> and that is a bit we have the, the biggest impact mm -hmm. over. Um, so I, the, the cost thing, I know, I, I know it can be a challenge because if you, if you take a simple sheet of plywood and then you take an FSC sheet of plywood, the FSC one is going to cost more. Mm. That's, that's just basic. So if you, if you try and just do your normal design and then make sustainable choices within the materials of that, well, it's going to cost more because the, you know, capitalism states that the, the, the economies of scale that exist with the other ones are going to make them cheaper. You can't fight that. that's, that's not, we're not going to win that war right now. Um, so you need to actually look up further up the chain and look at the different decisions, you know, about how you're using, how many materials are you using? What is the least you can do? Can you reuse stuff that's there? Apricity, those walls, we just took the plasterboard off and they were there. What else? Just put, you, know, you don't do anything else. It's done. Mm. Like, it's amazing. And, and I think by asking different questions and really digging into that, the strategies of that, you can get to a point where 100% it doesn't have to be more expensive. And then I think we just had one more question. I'm Kat from Absolute Project Management and we are a founder member with uh, Chloe's company and various others um, of interior design to Claire's. One um, bit of knowledge to share, it's nothing to do with our business, but there's a business called Swatchbox and their idea is that they have a box of samples and you call on, you go to their website and you order all the samples from them and they get delivered in one box at one time. Um, at the moment, they're building up, and so they are happy to take samples from any company and then recycle them in order to kind of build their brand and so on. So that might be worth knowing about. They're based in central London. I'm writing that down.
thank you, Alex, Chloe and David, for the most wonderful evening. It has just been so fascinating to hear your insights. And thank you also to Sofa.com for hosting us today. You can find the interior design business on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and on-demand services everywhere. And we're on Instagram at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood production. Thank you.